Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. So we are in the third week in a series uh, in the letter to the Romans, and the first couple weeks were really about Paul and, and about the Romans. And this week, if you are in school and you write a paper and they make you do like a thesis statement for a paper, or if you give a talk, sometimes when you give a talk, they'll tell you, hey, say what you're going to say, and then say it, and then say what you said. Well, this is Paul giving his thesis statement or saying what he's going to say. Like, this is Romans in a nutshell. Um, and it hits the themes that, that Paul's going to get to in Romans. So righteousness versus unrighteousness. Like righteousness is what we're made for, but how do we, how do we get to, to righteousness, get back to that? Um, salvation versus condemnation, Jews versus Greeks, faith versus works. And it has, a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the, the verse that makes memes and kitchen plaques and t-shirts, you know, uh, because the gospel is... And in, in the next few weeks, Paul's going to go straight into this. The, the gospel, as properly stated, is confrontational to the human heart. And in being honest about the gospel, is always going to create resistance, and resistance will create opportunities for shame. So I'm just going to go through this verse really line by line. I'm going to save the shame for the gospel part to the end. But as it starts, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The word power in the Greek is uh, dunamis, so dynamite comes from that word, or dynamic comes from that word, and this just got me thinking about power. Where does power come from in our society? Well, really, let me, let me just ask this question. What is power? What? Money. Well, let me start with what is power, and then because money, I think, is, a, is where it, com- it can come from money, but just what is power? Yeah, Influence. Control, authority. Um, I found this definition, the ability to direct or influence another's behavior or the course of events. And so, you know, the, the ability to make things happen, to influence, all those things are, are in there. Um, the, the, Paul wrote this, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so... To God, the word of the cross is the power of God. Now, in our culture, in our society, what, where do you get power? Where does power come from? Now you can say money. Yeah, what else? Knowledge? Yeah. Status? Education? Talent? Yeah. I thought personality, in our culture, personality can give you a great amount of power. Privilege, um, beauty can give you power in our culture. Um, Talent can, uh, sometimes talent thinks it has more power, like actors and athletes, we don't really care what you think about politics, you know. Um, But if if you're in the actor, actress thing, like, you shape the stories that we listen to, and so there's a power that comes with shaping the story. And so the media, like Hollywood has power, the media has power, um, social media giants right now have power. 
Uh, you can get power from position or formal authority, um, whether that be po- political leaders have power, corporate leaders have power, um, intellectual, like university. Uh, I can remember a time when I was in grad school at Ohio State, which, which at the time was like with grad students, the biggest university in the country, and I was like re-engaging my faith and, um, and driving around the campus thinking exactly what Paul wrote, the word of the cross is folly on this university. Like, is this really where true wisdom lies? And just the contrast between those powers. Um, the crowd has power. If you have the ability to manipulate the crowd, you have power. And those are all types of power that people use to accomplish their ends. But what Paul is talking about seems like a really different type of power. Uh, let me ask about church for a second. Um, how, does the, how, do people, how does the church seek power? Or how do people seek power within the church? that a harder question? Um, so I thought, like, the church is seeking power through politics recently. Um, I think the church and people within the church seek power through personality. And I think um, maybe not as much now, but historically the church has used guilt and shame to get power and influence people's actions. I actually thought through this message a lot, and, and after a handful of times, I thought love isn't something that I would think the church uses <laughs> to, to get power, which is a, a problem. Um, when Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, I think he's saying, you think power comes from these things, but I'm telling you the most powerful thing lies someplace else, and it is the power of, of the gospel. It is the power of the cross. And the power of God, the power of the cross, is the power of love. Uh, and that's the gospel. The gospel is unmerited favor. It's, um, it's like unconditional love, but not. It's like conditional love where, where God himself meets the conditions for you because you can't meet the conditions um, for yourself. And that's where Romans is going. That's his thesis statement. That's this, what the whole morning is about. And you can be, I think you can be in church your whole life, and you can hear that all the time, and it can take a long time for it to sink in because we default, great, like faith versus works is one of the themes, grace versus law. We default to law. I heard someone say this years ago. They just pointed out that God made us, put us in a garden, and said, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is law. And so we're made for that. We're made to think we can do that. And the problem is that we couldn't do that, and that's where everything went off the rails, but we, we just have a hard time admitting that we can't do it. That's the whole thing, but we're made for law. Uh, I thought about myself. When I started speaking like week by week, which is a couple years before we started the church, we had a ministry where we met every week, and so I would be speaking. And I'm not great at being like, someone once told me, you're not a bullet point preacher. I'm not good at like saying here's what to do. But I was trying to be better at that. But then I remember thinking once a month, I just need to tell people, you will not believe how much God loves you. Thinking there's so much power, like people just need to hear that God, you will not believe how much God loves you. And, um, and then I, when we started the church, I started listening, someone put me onto a guy named Tim Keller. I started listening to his preaching a lot and he was able to do that. And I listened to his preaching course and he said, um, it's called Preaching to the Heart. And he said, 
He said the Sunday school message is like, here's what the Bible says, and here's what it meant to the people who read it. And he said most sermons are, these days are like, here's what the Bible says, here's what it meant to the people who originally heard it, and here's what it means to us today. But he said you can do all that and never really get to the gospel. And so he tried to preach, here's what the Bible says, what it means, here's what it means to us today, but you can't do that, so here's the gospel, and here's what you really need. And he said I would, I'm, he's, when he thinks about this, he starts preaching to someone's head, and then he preaches to their will, but eventually he wants to preach to their heart. And so I started to try and do that week by week. And um, I might have been better previously than I am now at doing it. And when we started the church, there was a guy who um, was, was one of my better friends and just a great guy. And um, he grew up, grew up in church his whole life and came with us when we started the church. And uh, eventually was an elder for a few years before they moved away. And he said, um, he's, after, after, I don't know how, six months of the church being out, he's like, hey, um, hey, you kind of say the same thing every week when you preach. Like, we get it. You know, Christ died for our sins and stuff. And I'm like, shoot, I don't know what to do with that. And man, a year or two later, he took me out to lunch. And in tears, which blew me away, he was like, hey, I get it now. Like, there was a depth to it that he gets. We... Receive communion. Today we're going to take it. I'll explain that at the end. But like we receive communion every week um, because we're so quick to forget the, the gospel, that we need the gospel. And we forget because it's hard to receive the grace of God, to admit you need the grace of God time after time after time, week after week after week, day after day after day, minute by minute by minute. But Paul's saying that's where the power of the gospel is. It's in your need for him, it's not in what you can do for God um, or yourself or anyone else. It's in what God has done for you that you didn't deserve. And we're quick even to turn the gospel into something that we put on our spiritual resume. You know, if I got baptized or I received Christ or I did this or I did that for him, because we default to law. Um, I was having a conversation a few weeks ago with um, some soccer dads was at a tournament uh, for my son. And I really had the same conversation with my physical therapist a few weeks before that. And so um, when I meet people and just get to know them, like I just, over time, you figure out what it is that might get you in a conversation about the gospel. And for me, it, we end up talking about what I do. And so I tell them I'm a, I'm a pastor. And, uh, but then I'll say, but it really wasn't the plan. And then they'll ask, what was the plan? And so I'll go all the way back to when I, when I grew up, I grew up in a church that was a church that I think taught, hey, be nice, which is, I, th I think we all teach that, you know, but that seemed to be the, the dominant message to me. And then my, um, my folks split up, and my dad started going to a different church, and a lady pointed out to me, like, she didn't say it exactly this way, but this is what she said, like, if you could be nice enough, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross, right? And I'm like, oh, that's a great point. You know, she's like, it's not about you being nice, because you can't be nice enough. Like, it's not about what you've done for him, it's about what he's done for you, and that is a gift that you need to receive. And like, do you want to receive that? I'm like, yes. Like in an instant, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And it hasn't made sense until this moment, you know? And so I'll say that. I said that to these soccer dads. Within 10 minutes, they're talking about like, and this isn't to crack on them. We all do this. But like, yeah, I'm trying to get my kid to go to church because I want him to be nice. <laughs> or I'm having my kid do these things in church because it's the right thing to do. Like we default back to it. And so I think our, what we think about it's easy for us to be like, it's grace plus law. You know, so it's grace, it's what Christ has done for me, but it's also, I have to keep up my end of the bargain. That is not what it is. 
Like you cannot keep up any end of the bargain. It's all what Christ has done. So then we start thinking maybe it's grace and then law. And so I realized I was screwed up. And so I accepted the grace of God in Christ. But then I got my act together, you know, and that didn't, so we don't need the grace as much as we needed it then. Or, but in reality, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that is like disarming and humbling because it leaves you completely out of control of the situation. Um, you remember the Roadrunner cartoons where Wiley I Coyote ends up off the cliff and all of a sudden realizes there's nothing beneath him? That's how the gospel feels to me. Like, like you're totally dependent upon him because it's not about what you've done. It's only about what he's done. And so that is scary at one point but it's freedom at another point. Uh, Martin Luther was um, the, the guy who started the Reformation. So he was a Catholic priest, monk, and uh, he was a really intense guy. And this verse is what got the Reformation going because he was so like, focused on the righteousness of God and being righteous. Um, and, he, and he hated God because of the weight that that righteousness was to him, because he knew he couldn't do it, but he knew he was supposed to. I mean, I've read that he, he would spend eight hours a day confessing his sins because he didn't want to die with any unconfessed sins. And then one day it hit him like, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live, it's from faith for faith. Like, it's all about faith, and it's not about works. And like, yeah, I can't do it. That's the point. And it changed him. And so the first thesis of the 95 thesis that he put on the, the door of the church in Wittenberg, when, the Lord, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of life is repentance. One person wrote, all of the Christian life is repentance, turning away from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Those aren't merely one-time inaugural experiences, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. Uh, not a burden, but a freedom that we can keep coming back to him with that. Luther's last words, almost 30 years later, written on a piece of scrap paper, were this. We are beggars. It is true. This is true. Like, Really, the same thing as, the, as that first thesis. Like, we are just dependent upon the grace of God. From the first thesis to last words, Luther lived at the foot of the cross where our rebellious condition meets with the beauty of God's lavish grace in the gospel of his son, a gospel deep enough to cover all the little and massive flaws of a beggar like Luther and beggars like you and me. Does that seem powerful? You know, on the one hand, it seems really weak and really dependent. Um, but that's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. When we are weak, he is strong. And it is the strength of God. Uh, I'm, I've used this a number of times over the years, and it's um, from a pastor named Jack Miller. Cheer up, you're, worse, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. This is Paul's thesis. And the next few chapters, you are a worse sinner than you ever imagined. But God's grace for you is deeper um, than you ever dared hope. Uh, the, the, um, the capacity to deliver justice seems powerful 
to us. And so a lot of our movies and our shows are geared towards delivering justice. My, some of my favorite movies, the ones that if I'm flipping through the channels I can't pass up, are the Taken movies and the Born movies. Because those guys are like all-knowing. They know everything. They figure everything out. They're all-powerful. Um, they can always get the bad guy. And they're, and they're good, sort of, mostly, in the stories. You know what I mean? And the bad guy dies at the end. And, and we feel power with that. And I think that's what I'm drawn to. But then there's other stories that are big stories in our culture. They're kind of gospel-y. You know what I mean? So Braveheart was a huge story. And that guy was powerful but ended up dying in service of something bigger than himself for other people. Or Gladiator, um, John Eldridge pointed this out once, Gladiator is the story of a general who became a slave who died to save an empire. And he's like, where'd they get that story from? Like, that's Jesus right there in a story. And so he dies for something bigger than himself. Um, Saving Private Ryan, if you remember that movie, was a guy who had three brothers and, they, and three of them died on D-Day. And so they didn't want his mom to lose the fourth, all four of her sons. So they sent like a little company or unit, I never been in the military, but in after him to find him somewhere in France or Denmark or someplace over there. And, um, but then the, the company that goes after him, they all die finding him and saving his life. And the movie ends with him on the, as an, like an 80-year-old man on the cliffs of Normandy before the grave of the guy, Tom Hanks, who led the deal, saying to his wife, tell me I'm a good man, tell me I've lived a good life. Because he gave his life for me, and that motivated me to be something better. Like the capacity to catch the bad guy and deliver justice is a type of power. The capacity to resist delivering justice and forgive instead is of greater power. The capacity to catch him, take his punishment in his place, and then letting him go, that's insanity. But that is the power of the gospel. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on the cross for us, took our punishment so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is astounding, just astounding, astounding enough to never move past it. It is the disarming power of the gospel, and that's the thing that, is, that will change hearts and change relationships and change churches and change neighborhoods and change the world, like true love that's been paid for. Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, the first martyr of the church in the book of Acts, getting stoned to death with the face of an angel instead of spitting out, you'll get yours. Uh, that's the power of God unto salvation. Law is what we can do limited by the flesh. Grace is what God has done for us in Christ, unleashing the power of the Spirit. Um, I thought about, I don't know if you saw this late last year, there was an article about, there were several articles that came because something happened with nuclear fusion. Anybody see this? Like, we're, right now we do fission, which has radioactive byproducts, and fusion is like the holy grail of energy production. It's like what the sun does. It's like a, a reaction that keeps reacting, that multiplies, um, but, but we don't really control it. And so, and so, um, so I thought that grace is like fusion that just keeps going, and law, what we normally do is like trying to power your house by running on a treadmill. 
or during your Peloton thing or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like it's so much more powerful. Um, one last example of that, and it's my favorite movie, my favorite movie of all time probably is Cars. And so Cars, you should watch Cars if you never watch Cars. It's about a you know, little punk race car driver, but it's just a car named Lightning McQueen. And he's got to go across the country to this race in California against Chick Hicks and the King to win the, the what's it called, the Piston Cup. I think that's it. And, um, and he gets stuck in this town called Radiator Springs. The time has passed by, and time's passed by all these people. And he rips up the road, and they hold his feet to the fire, and they're like, you're going to fix this before you get out of here, punk. And, uh, and there's a crusty old guy who's like the mayor named the Hudson Hornet. And he was once like Lightning McQueen and won his own Piston Cups, but then people abandoned him, and so he's bitter. And, so it, and he fixes most of it, and then they find him, and they're taking him back to California. And they end up asking the Hornet, they're like, hey, we can't just let him go. He's like, just let him go. He says it just like that. And which is really what God is going to say in a, in a couple, in just a few passages. Like, he gave them over. And so the Hornet has really given him over. But then he gets to California in the big race, and he's losing the race, and he can't fix it himself. And who shows up to save him? The Hudson Hornet. This is one of my favorite scenes of all time, because he shows up, and he's this crew chief now, and it's like vindication for the Hornet, because everyone's like, is that the Hudson Hornet? And where's he been? And in love for him, but then he helps Lightning McQueen get back on track so he's going to win the race. But right at the end of the race, he sees in his rearview mirror that Chick Hicks, who's another young punk race car driver, has, has uh, run the king off the track, and the king is the venerable old guy, and it's his last race. And so Lightning McQueen gets right up to the finish line. He's like an inch from the, he can win the Piston Cup, his dreams come true, and he just stops, he's like, Argh! and then he starts backing up, and Chick Hicks wins the deal, and Lightning McQueen goes off into the infield, and he pushes the king over the finish line. And so the Hudson Hornet did something for Lightning McQueen that Lightning McQueen couldn't do for himself, and it got Lightning McQueen to do something for the king that the king didn't do for himself. And, like, that's gospel-y. Again, I don't know if I'm going to say that that's the gospel. It's gospel-like, right? It's unmerited favor that produces power. And I think Paul would say we're looking for power in all the wrong places much of the time. Right? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, let me spend just a second here because the thing that surprised me the most in studying for the series was the tension between the Jews and the Greeks in the Roman church. And um, in, when, when you read Romans, I think it all makes a lot more sense if you think, oh, there's some tension between the Roman, like the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians that are in that church, and that'll come out during the series. The... Um, they think that the church was started in Rome by some Jewish Christians that became Christians at Pentecost, which was right after Jesus rose, um, ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and the disciples and tongues of fire, and Peter preaches, and thousands of people come to faith in Christ, and they're, coming, they're in for Pentecost from all over the world, and they go back to Rome, start the church, and then in the 40s, uh, Claudius, the emperor, kicks the Jewish people out of Rome, so he kicks those Jewish Christians out of Rome, and the leadership becomes all Gentile, and then they come back a few years later, and so there's tension. Just file that away for later. And then he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so righteousness and salvation are tied together, um, really, because salvation is the means by which we become righteous. And in one way, this is a one-time thing. When you receive the gift of salvation through Christ and, and who he is and what he's done for you, 
Like you are saved. And so you have, and the biblical term is you've been justified. Like your debt has been paid. You have right standing with God. Um, but, but one way that people talk about this is it's helpful is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And Paul, when he gets to like Romans 8, will get deep into this, what that means, like day by day, being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved eventually from the very presence of sin. Um, but when he, when he says here, in it the righteousness of God is revealed um, from faith for faith, I don't think we find righteousness super compelling. That, that, that word in our culture just isn't super compelling. I think when we think righteous, we think like maybe a goody two-shoes righteous, which seems kind of boring, or like we think of a self-righteousness, which seems kind of annoying. Um, but God's righteousness is made to make us think of like, this is everything that is good and right in the world is God's righteousness. There was a book that I read um, years ago called uh, a, brevi- a Breviary of Sin. Not the way it's supposed to be, A Breviary of Sin was the name of the book. And so he talked about the Hebrew concept of shalom, which is peace, but peace is not the absence of conflict, which is how we typically think about peace. But peace in the Hebrew mind is the presence of harmony. It's when everything is working the way that it's supposed to be. It's the garden where we're in right relationship with God, we're in right relationship with our own self, right relationship with each other, and right relationship with the creation. That is the righteousness of God. That is the peace of God. And so he ends up saying that sin is the violation. Any violation of God's shalom is what sin is. That is unrighteousness. Um, and so when he says the righteousness, I think we have an, intu- an intuitive sense of what that is, like the way things are supposed to be. Uh, but the word for right now for us, I don't think captures it in the same way. And so the end of every show and movie where the bad guy gets caught and justice is accomplished ends up with the bad guy in jail. I think with the gospel, the bad guy gets caught, the bad guy repents, the good guy forgives the bad guy, and then God turns the bad guy into a good guy. Like, that's what we're after. And honestly, that's less satisfying. That never happens in the movies, right? The bad guy just goes away or gets killed or whatever, but it's beautiful. It's more beautiful. And it's really good news because as much as we want to resist the notion the Bible is clear, we are the bad guy, and we will either receive justice or let God turn us into a good guy. Um, Paul goes on from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this is the line that blew Martin Luther away. It's not by my works. It is something that we receive by faith. And um, again, I, I think this is like a restoration of the relationship that they had in the garden where God said, there's that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but like, don't try and control that. Just receive it from me. I'll walk with you in the cool of the day every day. Just trust me. Just believe in me. Just have faith in me. And, and through that relationship, I'll give you everything that we need. From faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so it's a restoration of the dependence, the minute-by-minute dependence that we are created to have in a relationship with the Lord. Um, a couple weeks ago, there was a, uh, a woman that was, a family that was here at church for a number of years, and, and probably five, six years ago, um, Chandy had ovarian cancer, and, and we walked through that with her. And then at the beginning of COVID, they started to go someplace else, which is fine, and, and, but then her cancer came back a year ago, and 
we reached out to her and with limited communication, and she passed away a couple weeks ago. And right before she passed away, I was in touch with um, her husband, Jeff, and, and thinking about, like, just guarding their privacy, but thinking, man, I'd, I'd love to talk to her and minister to her. And, like, if you were here last week, to mutually encourage her by her faith. And what I thought was, and I've been with a, with a handful of people over the years, not a lot, but a handful of people that are, on, that are, that are about to die. And I never had this thought before. And I thought, I want to tell her, hey, to encourage her my, with my faith of where, what's about to happen to her. Hey, I don't know what happens when, when you die, but, when, but I'm pretty sure you get to see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, can you give him a message for me? And just tell him that I love him. Um, and that was part, in part to encourage her, in part because I can tell Jesus, I tell Jesus I love him all the time, but like it just seems more real if she's going to go through the veil and she's going to see him face to face. Whether it should or not, it does. But then I thought, that was my head, and then my heart thought, and tell him I'm sorry. Then a week or two after that, I was sitting down with Matt Noble, who's not here this morning, and he's like, you're sorry? Really? Like, what are you sorry for? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, just that I'm not like what I ought to be you know, that I haven't tried hard enough or whatever. And he's like, we got to talk about this, buddy. And he ended up with like, what you should probably be saying to him is thank you. And I'm like, shoot, you're probably right about that, you know. And what it pointed out to me, and I started thinking about this message, is that I am leaning into law more than I realize I am and not leaning into grace. Like I'm still living under law. And we should try and be the things he wants us to be, but realize that we are living in the grace of God. And I said at the beginning, you can hear this every week, and it take a while for it to sink in. Apparently, you can preach it every week, and it can take a while for it to sink in, too. Uh, that it's not what we can do for him. It's what he's done for us. And we get the joy of basking in the love of God for us. Like, all of life is repentance as much as we want to. Um, the righteous won't worry about their works because it's not about their works. There's a line I read years ago from Martin Lloyd-Jones where he says, the man who is truly meek is not sensitive about himself. He's not always watching himself and his own interests. He's not always on the defensive. To be truly meek means we no longer defend ourselves because we see that there's nothing worth defending. Like, we don't need to. Um, C.S. Lewis said, humble people don't think less of themselves. They think of themselves less. They don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less often because it's not about them. Uh, John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. Um, the righteous shall live by faith in the grace of God. And then let me go back to the beginning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is a really, really different way of thinking about things than kind of the spirit of our day or any day, just, just the default to law. It's a very different way of thinking about things. And that's why I started with the contrast between this power and the power of the world. One of the commentators wrote, the offense of the cross is this, that I'm so condemned and so lost and so hopeless that if he, Jesus, had not died for me, I would never know God. I could never be forgiven. And that hurts. That annoys. That tells me I'm hopeless, that I'm vile that I'm useless, and as a natural man, I don't like that. Um, that's always going to come across as like, 
offensive to people because it is offensive. In some ways, the, the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad, and the bad news turns out to be pretty bad, but the good news turns out to be really, really good. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, power. Greeks demand, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There will always be an opportunity to be ashamed, like in declaring the gospel to folks and saying, this is what I believe, because it won't make sense to people until it does. And before it does, it will just seem like weakness and foolishness. But once it does, it will be the power of God unto salvation. I'm, um, I'm winding this down, and so I'm going to ask the, the band, you guys can come back up. And I found this letter from a father to his daughter, and the father's really famous. I'll tell you who it is right at the end. But he writes, there is an extremely powerful force that so far science has not found a formal explanation to. It is a force that includes and governs all others and is even beyond any behind any phenomenon operating in the universe and has not been identified to us. The universal force is love. When scientists look for a unified theory of the universe, they forgot the most powerful unseen force. Love is light that enlightens those who give and receive it. Love is gravity because it makes people feel attracted to others. Love is power because it multiplies the best we have and allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. Love unfolds and reveals. For love we live and die. Love is God and God is love. This force explains everything and gives meaning to life. It is the variable that we have ignored for too long, maybe because we are afraid of love, because it is the only energy in the universe that man has not learned to drive at will. After the failure of humanity in the use and control of the other forces of the universe that have turned against us, it's urgent that we nourish ourselves with another kind of energy. If we want our species to survive, if we are to find meaning in life, if we want to save the world and every sentient being that inhabits it, love is the one and only answer. Perhaps we are not yet ready to make a bomb of love, a device powerful enough to destroy the universe or to destroy the hate, selfishness, and greed that devastate the planet. However, each individual carries with them them a small but powerful generator of love whose energy is waiting to be released. When we learn to give and receive this universal energy, dear daughter, we will have affirmed that love conquers all, is able to transcend everything and anything because love is the quintessence of life. I deeply regret not having been able to express what is in my heart, which has quietly beaten for you all my life. Maybe it's too late to apologize, but as time is relative, I need to tell you that I love you. Your father, Albert Einstein. Now, I think he got a lot of that right, and what stuck out to me was this guy who knew all about power in the universe, at the end, realized, I don't know about power in the universe. And what I, what I wish he realized is the greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
And at what, I, what I just like, if you've never realized this before, I hope you realize it this morning. If you've realized it a million times, I hope you realize it again this morning, that Christ, the King of the universe, the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created, while you and I were running from him and wanted nothing to do with him, died for us because of the great love that he has for us and calls us his children, and calls us his friends. That is good news. I'm going to, um, I'm going to do something I've never done before in the time that we've been at church, and something I naturally resist, uh, which is why I've never done it before. But Monday morning, I was running and thinking and praying about this, and I thought, man, I just want, I want to rely more on that power that Paul is talking about and less on the power that I lean into that's the power of our world. And I just want to ask, I just want to thank God for what he's given us and the grace that he's, he showed us in Christ and ask him that it would be more of him and less of me. And I want, I'm just going to invite us to do that as a church. And so, um, hear that. If this doesn't resonate with you, don't do it. If you're new, especially feel welcomed, but not compelled to this. But as a church, if it does resonate with you, um, I'd like us just to come before the stage and get on our knees and ask God for more. Like if you just feel like, yeah, I know, I know Christ, but I, but I know I'm leaning into the wrong things and I want more of what Paul is talking about. Um, I'm asking you to do that. So, so I've asked Kelly and these guys just to sing over us as we pray, or if you're just standing, the words will be there so you can sing. Um, and I'm just asking you to come forward during this next song, kneel down before the stage, maybe put a hand on someone's shoulder and another hand in the air and ask God for more. And after this first song, uh, we can get up. Communion will be in the corners this week. If you're new, usually we have someone serving this to us, but, um, but this is the body of Christ that has been broken for us. And the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. And so if you have received what Christ has done for you, we invite you to remember that um, by taking communion this week. And, and the kneeling isn't the thing. If you can't kneel or if you could kneel, but you're not sure you could get back up, then don't worry about kneeling. The praying is the thing. You can pray right where you are. That's fine. But it's a prayer of like, I just want, I want every bit of you that I can get, Jesus, because I know that's what I'm made for and what I need. Um, so if you could bow your eyes with me as I pray. Lord, we don't want to settle for the power of personality or politics or fame or status or whatever those things are and the temptations that come to us, Lord, because the, that power pales in comparison to the power that Paul is talking about. Um, I think I said something last week, like all the things that, that we want pale in comparison to what we already have in what you've given us, Lord. And we just want more of you. Or we want to fully realize the more of you that we already have because Christ has done everything for us that we need. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us 
and is in this room right now, Lord. And we are grateful and we want you, Lord. So here's our worship. We love you, Lord. And we're grateful. And we thank you. And we say, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.